We are in Luke chapter 3, so beginning at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee. Notice how Luke sets the timing here. We've seen Luke set dates before. And here we have him using the reign of the emperor, which is a very common process in Roman times. You would, you would date something based upon the year of the reign of the emperor. That sounds a little strange to us to some, you know, in the, in the third year of the presidency of, uh, in the third year of the second administration of President Barack Obama. I mean, it, it would be very similar to dating things that way. But, but in the ancient world and during the Roman Empire, that is indeed how they did it. And, and so he does it by the, the reign of the emperor. And then within the reign of the emperor, the governorship of Pontius Pilate over Judea, the region of the empire that this is taking place in. And finally, by a reference to a Jewish or a, a Hebraic ruler, Herod, who is ruler of Galilee. Now, some, some points on this. Tiberius Caesar's reign. His imperial rule is usually dated from 14 AD, which would make uh, um, Luke's reference either the year 28 or the year 29, somewhere in there. So if Tiberius started reigning in 14 AD, and this is the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, then it would just depend upon when in the year this is taking place as to which year, which in his 15th year, when in his 15th year it is, would then depend upon whether it was 28 or 29 AD. That's actually one of the most mm, fast and rock bed dates you can find anywhere in scripture. This particular dating is precise. Anywhere in all scripture or just in Luke? In the New Testament. There are, there are very few references that are as easy to pin down in terms of dates that we comprehend as this one right here. The year 28 or 29. And actually, if you know when this takes place, you can actually hone it down even more precisely to 29. But it's 28 to 29 AD. And now we have a second reference, Pilate governor or prefect, the actual Greek term is hegemenu, uh, hegemony, uh, rulership, uh, leadership, prefecture is the Roman term of, of, uh, of the area of Judea. He was the Roman, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. And he held that position from the year 26 to the year 36 AD. So this is right smack dab in the middle of Pilate's prefecture over Judea. If Pilate began in 26 and he ended in 36, that is the period of his, his prefecture in Judea. And this is taking place in 29 to 30. The this beginning of it is somewhere between 28 and 29. And Jesus' ministry then lasted a period of time. So smack dab in the middle of that. And then the third name listed is Herod. Well, Herod is Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. And he was the nominal ruler of Galilee until the year 39 AD. 
And he was ruler uh, as a vassal king under the authority of Emperor Tiberius. So he was sort of a local ruler. Now, interestingly enough, Pilate was in charge in Judea, whereas Galilee was under the authority of Herod Antipas. That doesn't necessarily mean that Pilate doesn't have any authority in Nazareth and Galilee. He does. But he has it as a military governor and through in cooperation with Herod Antipas. Herod has very little authority over Judea in the south, Jerusalem. Although he would go there and engage in religious activity there and other things there, in point of fact, that was under the direct command authority, governorship of Pilate, and, and that was part of an arrangement that was made with the high priests in the temple in Jerusalem, that they didn't want to have this Edomian king having too much to do with, uh, with their authority in the region. And so that was part of that arrangement to keep as much of his goings on in the north as possible in the Galilee region. So this dates it. You can't get any harder and faster. You can't get any more precise dating really anywhere in the New Testament. I mean, there are some that come close to this, but this is really as precise as it can get. There are some examples of similar precision that you can get in Paul's letters. Uh, to within a couple of years, this is really hard and fast. If it's the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, and we know when he reigned from multiple sources. My reference in here is to a statement from Josephus, but you can also date his reign to uh, with the uh, writings of other ancient authorities and lock it down very precisely. And we even know the month he, was, he, he entered his reign, and we know the month he died. And with that, you can calculate out you know, what year, what would be what. Much of our dating processes when we date manuscripts depends in part upon these kinds of dating systems. Um, we don't have it so much in the Bible, but copies of, of uh, manuscripts from the ancient world will often, especially if it's a legal document of any kind, will have the year of the reign of the emperor in which it was written on it. And using that, you can see how they formed various letters of the Greek alphabet. And that changed over time. And then you can compare and contrast with manuscripts that we do have that don't have dates on them. And if they form epsilons and iotas and omegas the same way in this manuscript that was written in the 15th year of the reign of the emperor, then you know that the scribe was trained at about the same time. Interesting. So it's a process of comparing and contrasting. Um, but that's important. This locks down the beginning of Jesus' ministry in terms of years. That's critical. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Eturia and Traconitus, and Licinius, ruler of Abilene. That's not Abilene, Texas. That's <laughs> During, <laughs> during long-winded no. speaker today. Wow, <laughs> me? No, <laughs> no, not you. During the high, during the high priesthood. Now here we have another dating process. We had all these others. The important ones were, of course, Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, and Herod Antipas. The others are important, but less so. Now we come to verse two. 
We have the real Jewish <clears throat> dating process, not just this Edomian descended king, but now we've got the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, that's strange because you only had one high priest at a time. Josephus tells us that and gives us exact dating for Caiaphas's reign, gives us exact dating for Annas's reign as high priest. Annas took office as high priest in 6 AD and reigned until 15 as high priest. He was then succeeded by his son-in-law Caiaphas, who was high priest from 18 until the year 36 AD. Annas, however, didn't die. He was still alive. And we believe it's, it seems reasonable to assume that he kind of served as an advisor. But he actually wasn't serving as high priest at the time. We, and Matthew makes reference to this. Um, he's also uh, listed in John as being high priest at the time. Although Annas is referenced in John in another capacity as sort of advisory high priest but Caiaphas was the high priest in charge and uh, but, but Luke lists them both together as if they were both high priest at the same time which is interesting that would be like say talking about the presidency of George W and George HW Bush at the same time almost that's actually a really good uh, uh, parallel here you have one who served one term, one who served two terms, same last name, both related to each other with a period of time in there, uh, and both alive at the same time. But is George H.W. Bush president now? No. Is he advisor? Was he advisor to the president, George W. Bush, when George W. Bush was president? Yeah, he was. He was. So that kind of gives you the, a, a parallelism here. Annas was important, but he wasn't high priest. Caiaphas was. But Luke is not precise about that. It's either a possibility he wasn't sure, or he knew of the tradition that Annas was sort of working behind the scenes and, and had an influence over Caiaphas. That's also a possibility. But you notice it, he, uh, Caiaphas is in, uh, in office throughout the entire period of, of Jesus' ministry and from long before, from long before. If he took office in 18, Jesus would have been on, I don't know, about 20, 21 at that time. And so for essentially Jesus' entire adulthood, Caiaphas has been head of the Jewish faith, high priest in Jerusalem. Pretty high muckety-muck. During the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to son, John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It identifies, again, it picking up the earlier portion of the references to, to John's birth, uh, to reference to Zechariah. He went into all the region around Jordan, the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, 
and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What we have here is the beginning of Luke's use of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be reading Luke for what Luke has to say, but right here I want to see how he does this. So just listen. You don't have to turn to Mark. Just listen and look at what is written in Luke um, right here at this part. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. This is from Mark. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a shorter reference to Isaiah, but it's, it's still a reference to that. It's clear that he's starting this exactly the same way as Mark did. He's utilizing Mark now. He's expanding upon Mark. He's making adjustments to Mark as he goes along but he's basing what he's writing now on Mark. Filling in, making adjustments, fixing things he thinks are not quite right, expanding on things that he thinks are a little bit uh, obscure, that kind of thing. And we will see this repeatedly throughout his entire gospel. Uh, some, of, some significant adjustments are right here. He fills in a little more of this prophecy here. He connects up John with Zechariah. Anyway, verse 7 of, of Luke chapter 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. You are a bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What a wonderful sermon this is. Uh, this is how you win friends. and, and uh, No, it's not. It's how you make enemies. But it's how you end up beheaded. It's how you end up losing your head. It's right. Yeah. Now, my question is, in the ancient manuscripts, are there notes or uh, stresses or markings that uh, uh, showed you or, or suggested to you the tone of voice you should drink. You brood of vipers. <laughs> <laughs> you brood of vipers. Not really. Uh, exclamation point. <laughs> Not really. That exclamation point that's in mine where, where he, he you know, cries out, you brood of vipers. Um, no. Ex first of all, the punctuation in the Greek here is is just interpretive. The manuscripts didn't have punctuation no, much. They had paragraph end markings. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> Everything else is just run on word, letter after letter after letter. So no, that's interpretive. <laughs> that was entirely interpretive on my part, based upon my translation here. Be careful, you, you're adding to the scripture. You. <laughs> <laughs> well then, okay. Could you possibly say it as? Oh, you brood of vipers. Who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? <laughs> like you're talking to your dog. Yeah, this is an example of a fire and brimstone sermon. Now notice one of the characteristics of all true fire and brimstone sermons. They don't go against other people. They go against the ones who are hearing it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's the people who are there. 
You brood of vipers. You brood of, you bunch of snakes, literally. That's, let, me, let me see. What's the rendering? Verse 7. Yeah, you bunch of sta- snakes. <laughs> you bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Metanoia. To change your mind, literally. To change your mind. Repentance. Hmm. <laughs> you got Susan Patton's attention while oh. walking down. <laughs> you bunch of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> He's letting them have it. (laughs) Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. Why would they be saying that? Why would they be saying, we have Abraham as our ancestor? Well, we're fine as we are. We're we're saved, we're predestined, we're in. We're We're the in crowd. We're the chosen people. We have Abraham as our ancestor. We don't have to be worried about anything. Most I throw in that good southern accent. <laughs> Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. I mean, you know, you're no big deal. You might be children of Abraham, but if God really wants to have other children from Abraham, he can turn them, make them from these stones. Wow. You're you are not indispensable. Hmm. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. That's a warning right there. What do you do with an axe? You chop it, you take it and chop down the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you're not bearing good fruit, you better watch it. You're about to get chopped. That's a warning. He's not just name-calling them. He's telling them, pay attention to what you're doing. Just because you're a child of Abraham is not any guarantee of your eternity. You might get chopped down and thrown into the fire, and God will replace you with these stones over here. I mean, that's not really going to win him a whole lot of friends. But look, the people were coming out to hear him. They were flocking to him. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? They took him seriously. What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats, notice his immediate answer. Notice his immediate answer did not have anything to do with beat on yourself, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing this other. No. Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. That sounds like social gospel. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I thought about, I thought this repentance and this what should we do to stop from being chopped down means we've got to stop sinning. Well, kind of, yeah. Because you you haven't been sharing your coats. You You haven't been feeding the hungry. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him teacher what should we do? I mean these IRS agents come up to him and say what are we supposed to do? And he said to them collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. 
don't overcharge and keep the overage for yourself. Notice he doesn't tell them to stop being tax collectors. Darn it. I mean, Jesus doesn't want to get rid of the IRS? No. Not according to that. Just don't overcharge. Does he say, and it shall be increased year by year by year? No. <laughs> he said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Stop skimming off the top extra. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your rages. He didn't say, Leave the army. That's interesting. That's really fascinating. I mean, the pacifist in me would want to say, Jesus ought to say, Put down your sword and your shield and take off your helmet and pick up a plow. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says, do not extort money. Don't threaten them or try to steal money from them or by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. One of the things that, occupy, especially occupying armies, but it was true for local armies did too at that time, they would just go in and rob folk. Yeah. Take the spoils. Take, take the spoils of war, the spoils of occupation. And make them fight harder in a place that had more spoils. You know? Yeah, because they're going to get more. Yeah. Interesting. This is fascinating. <coughs> this is not what you expect if you've been raised in, the, in Western Christendom over the last several centuries. We, we talk about there would be personal holiness, uh, pray more, uh, go to church more. Um, uh, uh, stop, stop lusting after women or men, and 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 start start stop being stop lying and cheating and stealing. That would be the focus of it. Stop looking at them dirty pictures. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. If you have an in this world and this society, if you have enough that you've got two coats, <laughs> can you wear two coats at once? It's not going to be that cold. Share the one that you, the extra that you've got, with someone who doesn't have one. What's the basis for doing that? Why would you do that? Not just because you've been told to do it, but why would you do that? Fundamentally, why would you share with someone who doesn't have? From love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourselves for love. Mm -hmm. an, exp an expression of the basic calling that we have right there. This is spirituality. Mm -hmm. We normally think about this being, we think spirituality is prayer, reading scriptures, singing hymns. Jesus' definition, fundamentally, to take your love that's supposed to be behind all those ritual acts of piety and put it into action. Yeah, that's where we, that's where we really fall down. Uh, it needs, and we send their money to the front lines, but we don't See ever want to step anywhere near the front lines. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. You know, see, he doesn't give him any wiggle room. He says, must. That's a fairly de decent rendering there. It's the imperative yeah. case being translated from the Greek. There is no wiggle room here, according to Jesus. Must Even says should. Yours says should. Mm, that's a little weaker. But it's must. Shall is strong. Getting there. Must is strong. But in Greek, it is in the imperative case. It's command. This is a command of Jesus. And then, again, with the tax collectors, he doesn't tell them to stop collecting taxes. Darn it. He says, don't overtax and keep the extra for yourself. Only charge what's due to be charged. And likewise, soldiers, he doesn't tell them, get out of the army. He tells them, don't go around raiding and stealing for yourself. But be satisfied with your wages. That's fascinating. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Ooh. Ooh. I'm out here baptizing you with water. That's a preparation for what's going to come next because the, the one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. That's, that's like the crumbs under... Remember the old prayer of humble excess we used to pray in Holy Communion? I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm under the table. I'm not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. Wow, that's that basic idea. I'm not unworthy. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. I can't. I'm not worthy to untie his shoelaces. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And look at that verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the gran in it, into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What does a winnowing fork do? I mean, we live in an urbanized world, even in, out here. What, what is a winnowing fork? It helps to separate the chaff from the seed. Uh-huh. You, you take it and you throw it into the air. And it blows the chaff out. The and the chaff blows, blows out and the grain falls. Then we put a combine and it blows it down. Yeah. <laughs> So you can translate this by saying he had his he has his combine behind him and he, he's going to throw you in there and the chat's going to get sh shot out the other end. <laughs> That's an interesting mental image. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He's it's the unquenchable fire hell. Well, that's a good question. 
There are plenty of images throughout Scripture. This is, this is John the Baptist speaking here. But we have other examples, when we'll come to them later on, where Jesus is speaking and he talks about the end result being that the, the chaff of the weeds, uh, the unwanted stuff is thrown into a furnace where it is burned up. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I can, there, there's more than a couple of ways to understand that, I suppose. One is that the chaff are the people that God doesn't want, and the, the grain is the people that God does want. And those that God doesn't want, sorry, it he, is barbecue time. He doesn't want them, but he still loves them, right? Well, yeah. it doesn't, this doesn't talk about that here. I know it doesn't say that. No. We've heard that all our lives. Well, there, there may be one. other passages that would speak about that. But okay. there's another way to understand this passage that I actually like better. It's not that we have some people who are going to be burned and some people who aren't. But that the, that, that the winnowing fork is winnowing us through and through. Winnowing out of us the chaff, the stuff that needs to be thrown away, the desire to hang on to our coats, the desire to want to take more in taxes than we should, the desire to steal from the people around us, the desire to be unjust. And God's going to winnow that out of us. It's like the mental image is taking a great big fork, sticking it into you, and pulling all that junk out of you. And that is what gets thrown into the fire and destroyed. To use some basic evangelical language, Jesus is going to, to sift through you and remove from you the sin, and it's going to get thrown away, and what's left is going to be that which will enter the kingdom. I like that image better. I do too. Because that means that we've got hope. Everybody has hope. And you're still loved, and he throws the junk away. The junk isn't loved. You are loved. I much prefer that one. Now, granted, that's not how it's usually understood, nor is it probably the way in which it was originally intended. But it works. It works. Hmm. With many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. The good news to the people. The good news to the people. That's the good news. He got the mess out of you too. Well, if we understand it that way, it does become good news, doesn't it? If not, then you sit there wondering, am I chaff or am I weed? <laughs> oh, I'm worried about that. Well, by your fruits you'll know them. I mean, come on. That's what it said earlier. Hmm. But Herod the ruler, this is Herod Antipas, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now, the sequence of events here is very different from over in Matthew's Gospel, which has this happen later. Luke brings it forward, and he puts it right here. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized, Jesus suddenly, out of the blue, he shows up. And when Jesus 
also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended from upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now, now is that spoken just to Jesus? Was it heard by other people or just what? Well, good question, because it seems like it's it's coming to him in the midst of a prayer. Now, if you look at the parallels, let's, let's look at the parallels here, because this, I mean, I don't want to do this a lot, but let's do it for here. This is a good example. In Mark's Gospel, this event, uh, well, verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. I mean, right there, he just come, Mark just comes right out and says it. All that's been left out. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart, and the Spirit descended upon him like, like a dove upon him. And the voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And that's later on. So, I mean, it's very clear in Mark's Gospel, Jesus comes in the midst of this situation, and it says, John baptized him. Matthew does something very similar. Of course, Jesus has this long conversation with John the Baptist about, well, I, John the Baptist, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Over in Luke, I say I'm not worthy to you know, tie up your sandal. And, and here, I, I, you must do me. And, and Jesus says, no, you baptize me. It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I mean, he's very clear. And then verse 13 of chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And of course, the John would have prevented him. And then it says, And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came out of the water. So Matthew steps back just a little bit from Mark. Mark says John the Baptist baptizes him. Matthew says that he has this long conversation with John, but then John relents and agrees to do it, and then after the baptism had occurred this scene occurs where it's a visible scene. But in Luke's gospel it's already said that John the Baptist has been thrown into prison. Yeah. When did he get out to do this? The assumption is made that that's a reference to what was going to happen later. We pull that one from Matthew. Um, because Matthew doesn't mention I mean uh, Mark doesn't, we pull that one from Mark and Matthew but in Mark, it mentions it a few verses later after the, after the, uh, te the temptation in the wilderness. It mentions that, that uh, John the Baptist gets arrested. Now after, John, af now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe in the good news. Well, that occurs after the temptation in the wilderness. Luke's taken that arrest, pulled it, all the way to here and mentioned it before he talks about Jesus' baptism for a reason. To try to separate John the Baptist from baptizing Jesus. There's a progressive motion away from that affirmation. In Mark it states that you can't get away from it. In Matthew it states it, it's hard to get away from it, but it but very clearly places John the Baptist by his own affirmation in an inferior position. Usually you're baptized by someone who's superior to you. All right. 
John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy. And, and, and Jesus says, no, you got to do it. And so he agrees and he does it. Doesn't actually says, describe the action. It just says after he had been baptized. Luke's gospel takes it even one step further by saying, telling us that John the Baptist gets arrested. And then it mentions the baptism. Now, is it pulling it from Mark? Yes. Is, is Luke aware that John the Baptist baptized Jesus? Yes. But he's trying to minimize it. John's gospel, Jesus isn't baptized at all. He's not. The, the, the scene that you're asking about with the dove coming down is described in all four gospels. But how it's seen is different in each. In Mark, it's clearly articulated as a visible sign that Jesus sees. In John, John sees it. John the Baptist sees it. It says, I saw a dove descending upon him, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying about him. In Matthew, Jesus sees it. In Luke, it seems like it's happening in the midst of a prayer, of a time of prayer. That's how, that's how it reads. Now, now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. So in the midst of a prayer, it uses this bodily language kind of stuff. Uh, descending like a dove, or in the form of a dove, or as a dove would descend in bodily form, i.e. a discrete entity descending upon him. And it's described as Jesus seeing this. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the New Jerusalem, which I've never noticed before, says, you are my son, today have I fathered you. Today have I begotten thee. That's, that's a fabulous rendering. It pulls actually from the Old Testament for that one. And then, of course, it goes right into the uh -huh. genealogy. But uh huh. That's why probably why they've done that. Um, that's just. That's not, uh, I thought it was just startling. I love it. It said what? Carol? Read it again. Today I have have I fathered have you. I fathered. You are my son. Today have I fathered you. I think that's just okay. Now, how many times do you suppose I've read this and not seen that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Wow. I've not seen that either. It doesn't say that in Greek. Um, the it says in Greek. Huh? How, it it, it, it Greek? literally renders this as, you are my, my son, the one who was beloved, or my beloved. I am pleased with you. Now, what, so what do you think? They're, they're pulling, the, the New Jerusalem will tend to do this. It's it recognizing in the affirmation a statement from the Hebrew Bible that, um, read it again. You are my son. Today have I fathered you. The, today have I begotten you is a mm -hmm. phrase that we find in the Old Testament sure. prophets. Yeah. And it's a phrase that is used there for, uh, well, among others, the suffering servant imagery. Yes. And, and they're equating the two and thinking that that affirmation may actually be echoing that. I mean, it's a huge affirmation. Huge, huger than I'm well pleased. But but it's but I, you know, given your translation of the Greek, it's 
Yurakase, which is uh, happy, mm-hmm. happy, pleased. I rejoice in it. Uh, mm-hmm. It might be, it, we, you might get uh, in, in you, in su, yurakase. Uh, I am rejoicing. Might be a better rendering, but pleased is how it's usually translated. Mm-hmm. There's a variant working here that's yeah. pulling from Psalm 2-7. Yeah. Luke follows Mark in using Eudike, which means pleased or rejoicing. <laughs> a manuscript variant, this day I have begotten you, derives from the uh, inertial effect of Psalm 2-7, even though it is attested several times by early witnesses. Uh, it gives numbers of them. It is possible that Luke alludes to the servant song of Isaiah mm-hmm. 42.1, even though the Septuagint verse, version provides no verbal basis for thinking so. Matthew 12.18 reports a version of Isaiah 42.1 like Luke's, and the possibility is strengthened by Luke's use of uh, eklogmai in 935. See also the use of Eutychiae in 2.14. Uh, the, the rendering is from Mark. What, what the translator is doing is he's using one of the strong variants which is pulling from the Psalms for that and drawing and the, the connection. And the Psalm is just great. I will proclaim the, the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today have I fathered you. And it renders this as the messianic drama in yeah. Psalm 2. Uh-huh. Um, the note for that uh, um, which you've really begun to open up for us, the, the, the influence of Mark on this and Mark's rendering of that in Mark's word. And yeah, I just think it's fascinating that, mm-hmm. that uh, the, 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 the translator. They decided to do that following some of the manuscript variants. That's a, that's a good example. Following some of the manuscript variants. Let's see if it's referenced in here. It should be out of curiosity. Verse 22. These pages stick together. Uh, oh, they do mention it. Uh, verse 22. Variants that include today I have begotten you, D, uh, Old Latin, Justin Martyr references it, Methodius, Hillel, and Augustine all utilize it. It's also found referenced in several uh, uh, several other manuscripts of a later period as commentary in margin. So later people, as they would hear this, they would re- be reminded of that from the Psalms, and they would write in their margin, like Psalm mm-hmm. chapter 2, or Psalm 2, two 7, mm-hmm. like Psalm 2, verse 7, or something like that, and, or we quote it there, and that's how that happened. Interesting. Yeah, but there is a variant here that follows that tradition for that verse. Wow, thank you. That's, that's, it. that's another example of how the text can shift and result in changes in translation and changes in meaning. But the rendering is probably pulled from Mark's gospel. Jesus was about 30, old, 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son. Now here we come in. To, yes? Before we leave, yes. the yes. God's proclamation of satisfaction, does anybody have problems with that? I have a terrible problem with that because okay. if Jesus is the Father incarnate, 
you're the same person, that phrase comes out, I'm proud of me, which is not very godly. <laughs> uh, Jesus is the incarnate word of God. The Father is understood as, in Trinitarian theology, as the first person of the Trinity, or the creator, the Father. The Trinitarian structure is that God, the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit are one, but God the Father is not God the Son, God the Son is not God the Spirit, God the Spirit is not God the Father. They are three in one, yet distinctly separate beings, as illogical as that is. All right? Of course it is. But, but, the, but this is one of the reasons why that kind of stuff comes about. Because, yeah, it, it has Jesus. If Jesus and the Father are one, then Jesus is praying to himself in plenty of places. And when he's hanging on the cross and he's, uh, and he's quoting from the Psalms, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's asking, oh my, oh my, why have I forsaken myself? That can't be the case. So it has resulted, the scriptures have resulted in theologians thinking about this stuff and it started in its... It's evolved Trinitarian theology as the result of it. This concept that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all one, they are all God, and yet they are distinct from each other. As Which makes zero sense. <laughs> of course it doesn't, but it does. It does and it doesn't. Um, my... my father was the son of his father, the husband of his wife, and my dad. The nature of him in each of those relationships is different. He reacted differently to his dad than he did to his wife than he did to me. And his character and his nature as a person varied from each relationship. That's one way of thinking about the trend. It's not the only way. And if you think about it just that way, you step yourself into a heresy called modalism. You've got to be careful about that one. But it is a snapshot of thinking about the Trinity in that kind of way. How does God function? And in those relationships, how does God function? And, 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 and it, it's a way to think about it. Um, I get snarled up with the anthropomorphism of it all. Of course. Because I don't perceive God as anything at all like a, a creature. It's no. A spirit. And, uh, and yet, and yet we have, and yet we have difficulty talking about a being in anything other than anthropomorphic terms when you're going to relate with that being on a regular basis. Even with your, even you're going to communicate with that being. That being is going to have to use words, and words are human creations. And and you, you kind of, you kind of, it, it's one of those things that you just kind of have to struggle with at the same time. And understand that any single image or definition or experience is not the totality of it all. Hence, with the Holy Spirit coming down and a voice from heaven speaking about himself there, if you understand it that way, it, it does become loopy. <laughs> so you have to kind of try to separate off those ideas. And it's not easy to do. In fact, no one can do it.
I mean, it is like this business of saying that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Standard Christology of the church is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. 100% God and 100% human at the same time, all the time, in everything. And everything that God does as Jesus the human does by virtue of his humanity. And everything that Jesus does as God, he does as virtue of God. So God experiences death by virtue of his humanity. And the human Jesus experiences eternal life by virtue of his divinity. You can get yourself into a tail-chasing, tail-eating uh, insanity trip if you try to understand that or explain it logically, because it can't be done. And yet the church affirms that kind of stuff all the time based upon what we read in Scripture. The same is true for the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is nowhere completely spelled out in Scripture, and yet this is an example of a place where theologians over the centuries have seen it implied. There's something dynamic going on here that's not tritheism, although it has appearances of tritheism. And you got to get around that somehow because we have plenty of other places in Scripture that say it's not tritheism. It's monotheism. So how do you get around that? And that's how they've concluded. It makes me uncomfortable too. But, but, it's, but it's, that's, that's one of the beauties of the Christian faith. You're constantly dealing with those kinds of tensions. Okay, let's take a look at the genealogies. Now, I, I want to warn you, it's, it is almost totally different from Matthew's. There's not a genealogy in Mark. Matthew has a different one that starts with Abraham. This one goes all the way back to Adam. And there's very little in common between the two. Well, one is Joseph and one is Mary, isn't it? Traditionally, that has been an interpretation, but look at what it, it says. Sounds like maybe not. Huh? Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Eli. Well, that's interesting because sometimes in... Christian tradition, it's been said that Matthew's gospel retains at least part of the genealogy from Joseph, and Luke's gospel retains the genealogy from Mary. Well, not necessarily. Because it seems like, as was thought, and that's mm -hmm. in the oldest, um, indicates that some, some hesitancy there. One theory is and the one that sustains the concept that this is Mary's genealogy is that that's not necessarily Mary's genealogy but her dad's genealogy or, or her granddad's genealogy and somehow it skips to her. That's yeah. weak. That's weak. Yeah. Um, if this is Joseph, Joseph's genealogy, then, then you do have some fascinating problems. <laughs> now, not necessarily... Now, not necessarily... Uh, well, it could be an extraordinary can of worms. Um, if you go down here, let's see. Uh, first of all, the order in the sequence is reversed, but according to verse 16 of chapter 1 of Matthew, Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Whereas in Luke, it says Joseph, son of Heli. And those two names, Jacob and Heli, are not the same name. 
So you've got a problem right there. If you set that problem aside, it's not having a different genealogy is not fundamentally a problem. I'm a genealogist of the Neil and McNeil clan, and quite frankly, it can be so incredibly confusing. You can trace my line backwards through so many different possible sublines, it's ridiculous. Especially when they were related way back there 250 years ago. And then it splits and then it comes back together. Uh, that's terrifying, but that happened a lot. <laughs> and, and you could tra tra trace my line through multiple different routes and get back to the same person or persons. So that's not necessarily the problem. The problem is at verse 16 in Matthew relative to Luke's rendering here if this is Joseph, the husband of Mary, mm -hmm. that is being referenced here. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting genealogy. There's not nearly enough names, by the way, to get you back to Adam. It's a stylistic genealogy. It's, um, there are a whole bunch of names that have no reference anywhere in Scripture. In the Old Testament, there's no indicator of these at all in many cases. There are for some, but there aren't for others. It, it, it's, it's fascinating. What is Luke trying to do with this genealogy? What is he trying simply what is this what does the genealogy say? Well, with the benefit of my notes here uh, that uh, Jesus, like Adam, did not have a father and uh, an earthly father and, uh, and so it sets up that uh, why Luke goes all the way back to Adam so it gives up the as the idea of Jesus as a second. It's theologically a statement that Jesus is the second Adam. It's theologically a statement that, that God is the father of Jesus. It's a statement that Jesus has an ancestry that is rooted within Judaism. Judaism, yeah. Within Hebraic and Judaistic thought. Is another concept that's communicated here. That he's not like some other deities of other religions like Tammuz or some of the others who are descend down out of heaven with no connection to humanity. That he's definitely a human being. Which is fascinating. That he has a right to be called a son of David because he's a descendant of David. There are lots of different things that Luke is saying with this genealogy. It's probably best to take this genealogy as more of a metaphor or an allegory or a parable than as a literal rendering. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not nearly long enough to go back to Adam even if you identify it, at each step of the line, there's just not enough names. been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 
by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.